New Zealand. Laurel Hubbard, third attempt, 131. This would move her into second. Oh, it's such a thrill. I mean, the barbell, I don't want to say it's, it becomes weightless, but it feels like it's alive in your hands. She's a reluctant pioneer, a trailblazer. Hold on. But all Laurel Hubbard wants to do is lift weights. 131. All right. I am who I am. I'm not here to change the world. I just want to, you know, be me and just, uh, yeah, do what I do. The 43-year-old is set to be the first transgender Olympic athlete. Kiwi weightlifter Laurel Hubbard is on the verge of making history. As the first transgender athlete to compete at an Olympic Games. Thanks to COVID and forced changes to qualifying, weightlifters had previously needed to attend six events, but it's now four. The next step is for weightlifting New Zealand to nominate her for Olympic selection. She'll then need to be deemed a top 16 chance by the NZOC before they'll pick her. But the struggle is far from over. The pressure that is going to come on her as the first transgender Olympian internationally is going to be monumental. And now we've kind of come to that place in the road to where now we've got Laurel, if she does decide to compete in Tokyo, we now have all this information, but unfortunately it's not going to be applied for this Games. That's the challenge. That's transgender athlete Kristen Woolley. She calls herself a survivor. She tried to represent Canada in track cycling in the Olympics, but was stopped by the International Olympic Committee's testing rules. So she took the IOC and other sports bodies standing in her way to the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal and won. She's been pushing for changes in the rules around transgender athletes, but worries the system is still not ready for Hubbard. I've lived that experience and the vitriol and, and, and all of that that comes with it and, it's, and how terrifying all that is. Not that I want to take away from, from Laurel's experience, but this, what we now know, we haven't designed the system right yet and people are, have displaced or misplaced the information inappropriately to which the most vulnerable people are being impacted. Mm. And that's the tragedy in, in, in this discussion and, and, and the heartbreak of this discussion, that that is what's occurring. And so there, I'll be quite frank with you, there is no support for Laurel outside of New Zealand right now. And that's my biggest concern because the system isn't ready for her. Though we would love to have her competing, of course, or any athlete in this case competing at the Olympics, but the, the, the games aren't prepared for it. And, and, and that's the scary part of this. And, and, it's, and it's actually endangering the athlete. By endangering the athlete, Worley means there will be serious health and well-being consequences for Hubbard in meeting the anti-doping requirements at these games. Since her transition, Hubbard's body can no longer produce testosterone. Normally, a transgender person would take hormone replacement therapy supplements or injections for mental as well as physical health. But under the IOC rules, Hubbard's total testosterone level in serum must be below 10 nanomoles per litre in the 12 months before competing. Unless she has an exemption, and that's a therapeutic use exemption, Worley says her testosterone levels will be so low that her health will be at risk. She says the rule was made using old methods and old science. The policies are the problem. It is a design issue 
to which is impacting the, the health and well-being of the athletes. Laurel is one of those athletes like me who's had the surgical intervention of their body at one point of their transition. So they lost the ability to generate any hormones whatsoever. Laurel's body doesn't generate any hormones. Her body, her endocrine system has been disrupted by the removal of, of the gonads, which can either be ovaries or testicles, which are the main contributors to the development of hormones. Transition is, is not something that you, you're not a healthy person. As soon as you go through transition, you will never be healthy because you're taking the body out of its normal, normal function. Okay, so as soon as you're decreasing the, the testosterone, we, we know what it's called. It's called hypogonadism. There is a medical term for it. And that's typically for, for XY individuals, typically males. We have, we have the research at the World Anti-Doping Agency where we have therapeutic use extensions to elevate testosterone in the human physiology to ensure one's health and participation in sport, let alone health day to day. So immediately, in terms of the ruling of the testosterone issue to which policy has been placed, there is no science and research or foundational research of the development of that policy to, put, so, to support that number. Does that make sense? Yes. And this is where the problem has been the last 12 years. And this is what, because the research that, the, that supposedly the IOC did at the time to support the five and that, that level of testosterone was never done. We want to make sure that any athlete, it doesn't matter if it's Laurel or any other athlete, we want to ensure that that athlete is able to seek the opportunities just like anybody else to participate in sport healthy. I don't want to make this a, again, a testosterone issue, but that is a primary function of, of the XY physiology. We want Laurel's testosterone levels, we need to put more gas in her car to make sure that she's competing healthy for New Zealand. Competing, that she's also competing safely as an athlete before anything, before she steps onto the world stage or any stage in competition where she will not be uh, uh, injured because of policy that was poorly designed without science and research that was impacting her without her knowledge. And I think the work that we've done the last 18 months, in, again, in this bubble, it has enabled us to get past that point. But are you saying that if she if she was tested and her levels of testosterone were above that limit, would she still be able to compete? Right. Is that what you're saying? No, under the current policy, unless she got what was called a therapeutic use exemption, and the acronym is TUE, mm. she could seek a TUE from New Zealand Anti-Doping to be able to elevate her testosterone levels to to a level that would enable her to be healthier. But right now, she's in a situation 80 days out before the, the Tokyo Games, and these things take a long time for the body to repair itself. It's physiologically impossible under the current time frame for that to happen. So, and, and, and a lot of metabolic impacts now, because of the length of, of her transition, will not change in her lifetime because oh, the, the impact to, by the lack of hormone in her physiology has created uh, atrophy on uh, various aspects of her physiology uh, internally that won't allow her to recover appropriately to a healthy place. So it's definitely a problem, but it's not one of her doing. Because it's like taking the gas out of the car. When you lose testosterone in your physiology, what happens is it's like the car starts to shake. When you take the gas out of it, the petrol out of it, things start start to happen and certain functions of the body decrease or even stop functioning altogether. Right. So you... you're putting them in, in, into an incredible risky situation, um, participating in sporting activity, let alone elite, elite participation. And for a lot of cases that we've come to understand as well, 
Sharon, is that the athletes are unaware of their own health implications too. Mm. So that is, it's, it's a two-part problem and it gets scarier as the athlete gets older. So the further from the point of time when they had their surgical intervention of their, of their transition, usually between this, the, the window of six to eight to 10 years is where we really start, start to see the physiological problems starting to occur due to what we call androgen deprivation in the body. But Worley says there's been a lack of scholarly research over the last 12 years in this area. The IOC and World Anti-Doping Agency were more worried that... That person was starting with the appropriate genitalia in the starting line. We have failed in the design in the design of sport, and that's the problem. We've tried to homogenise gender, and we've tried to compare apples to oranges into saying that if you lower an athlete's testosterone level who is XY chromosome, but somehow that's going to match somebody who is XX. No, you're making that XY chromosome person completely unwell long-term in sport and, 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 and to end of life, mm. thinking that, that somehow that's going to assimilate to somebody who is XX chromosome. You never become unwell, Sharon, if you were an elite athlete, if you lowered your testosterone levels. Mm. You, would, you wouldn't even notice it. It's where you would notice it would be changes in your estrogen and progesterone levels because those are your primary hormones. Based on her own experiences and backed up by science, Kristen Worley has been working with the IOC in the last 18 months on better ways of dealing with transgender athletes. And it's made good progress, she says, but not good enough. I, I think lessons have been learned through me. I was the, actually the, I was the first under the policy of the IOC back in 2004 to ever go through uh, gender, go through that. I was the first athlete under the policy in the world, let alone in the sport of cycling. Laurel would never have to go through that. But what information does she have to provide? It would, it would just be Laurel or any other athlete based under the World Anti-Doping Agency and, and under the current policy. All, all of this she is to do is supply you know, consistent blood work. Okay. Medical blood work. To, to show that works. her testosterone to, 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 to the, Right. So, so to the New Zealand Anti-Doping Agency in New Zealand, and it, it would go specifically under privately in her file. That's right. And nothing else? She's, there's no psychological testing or no physical checking or anything no, no, like that? No. no. She doesn't have nothing. to give up her medical files that the IOC can look at? She, any, any athlete, and it's just not unique to Laurel, any athlete who has transitioned, has to give up, gives up their medical file theoretically to the IO, to to their sporting body. So she would have had to have done that to the New Zealand um, Weightlifting Association, which then would go to her international body in Europe under the under the current policies of the IOC to accept her athletes licensing. Even though we're in different sports, we have the same licensing agreements mm. um, in our sports to which is aligned to the Olympic movement. The IOC isn't putting anything special in place for her. I mean, they're saying that she can compete, but they're kind of saying, there you go, you have to look after yourself like all the other athletes now. The IOC, and God bless them, there's a lot of great people over the last several years that I've come to know. And that's me speaking from somebody who's had the, the, you know, a tragic experience as a survivor through this as well. Mm. A lot of this is generational. And some of it is also geopolitical with some of some some nations. But I can tell you the IOC has made tremendous steps under President Bach and also his focus on, on human rights. So there would have been more tremendous support for Laurel if it if, if there wasn't these emergencies going on in Tokyo right now. And, and this is really a big, as I talk about, I talk about a, a tremendous pivot. And it's really going to change the role of the Olympic movement worldwide. So- I get excited about it. Uh, shared at the end of the day because really this started all around the gender issues 
but it's really become something much bigger. So let's look at the social side of it, the debate over whether it is fear that triggers extreme views like this. Do you see that um, male who identifies as a female just broke all these world records in weightlifting? It's a new one that just <laughs> came out. No. Wonderful. That's <clears throat> Congratulations, everybody. You broke everything. <laughs> There's a social element to it as much as there is a science element to it. So you're going to need the buy-in from people to want to achieve this or to want to include people rather than exclude people. You know, if this happens at, at the Tokyo Games, it's going to be a fascinating prospect as to how it's dealt with within the sport but also in the media as well as to how it's reported. Newstalk ZB sports reporter Andrew Alderson has been covering the debate since Hubbard hit the headlines, but he's known Hubbard since school days. She was always a shy individual at school. I happened to be in the same calculus class at one stage, extremely bright, and just was able to keep to herself, if you like, for, for a lot of that period. And then found there was there was a sort of, I guess, a window there when we had uh, a, a fellow by the name of Rory Barrett came to our school, was St Kettingham College in Pakaranga, and uh, he was the deputy principal, but he was also a former Commonwealth Games bronze medalist uh, weightlifter and Olympian, in fact, uh, for the Montreal... Olympics, and uh, he sort of brought Laurel un- under his wing, and she turned into a terrific weightlifter at, at schoolboy level as it was. It sort of went from there, and it sort of found a natural fit, and then of course has developed these skills uh, you know, up to a point where you're potentially going to be uh, competing at the Olympics uh, in Tokyo. She's the daughter of Dick Hubbard, the former mayor of Auckland, yes. um, founder of Hubbard Foods. So kind of from a high-profile, high-achieving family, but as you say, a very, very private person. Absolutely. That's, that's what I remember, intensely shy. Uh, but then when she was brought out of her shell, you know, a real personality there as well, like quite quirky, sort of a wry sense of humour. Because I've listened to a few interviews with her, including John Campbell's one with her, and it was interesting. She talked actually about the reason that she got into weightlifting. Because it was archetypally male. I thought perhaps if I tried something that was so masculine, perhaps that's what I would become. But uh, sadly, that wasn't the case. Perhaps that's a product of the environment, all-boys school, the testosterone, the, the throwing of tin around the gym, etc. Uh, perhaps brings that out in some people. You take a step forward there to seeing her actually competing, and I, I had the pleasure of doing so at the Commonwealth Games uh, on the Gold Coast. You know, And she spoke afterwards at that particular event and was appreciative of the inclusivity that the event had, had brought about despite the initial uh, controversy. And I remember you know, the, the cheers and the... Uh, the, the raucous uh, reception as she came out to, to Katy Perry's firework, as it was. Really? Uh, in the arena there on the Gold Coast. And I think that was quite uh, a fillip for her to, to see that that was a, a level of support there for what she was trying to achieve. There was, as you say, a lot of controversy. There was a lot of opposition. One of New Zealand's brightest Commonwealth Games medal hopes faces a potentially hostile environment on the Gold Coast tonight. A chorus of protests from athletes and their coaches. I still am against it because I think it's unfair and uh, I just hope that all this happening over there, whatever media, is not going to affect the other athletes from competing at the Commonwealth Games and the spirit of the Commonwealth Games. And I think there's an element of fairness to that because the issue does have so many different layers, I think. Um, the main one being, and, and the one 
you know, you know, for the greater good that she competes in the competition because of the muscle memory involved. I mean, she was a you know, a champion weightlifter as a as a male at that younger level. Yeah, you know, lifted something of the vicinity of sort of three hundred kilograms um, in the one hundred and five kilogram class back in the the early two thousands. You never lose that muscle memory, albeit that has to be kept under control and under the Olympic limits as well. So she's always been under those limits while she's been competing with the ten nanomoles of testosterone. You have to be under that for for twelve months. Mm. So. She's ticked every box, to use a, a cliche, while competing as, a, as an athlete. So does that argument continue then into to the Olympics, the people who say this is not a level playing field? Oh, I think it'll, it'll be ongoing, Sharon. You know, in many ways, she'll be a trailblazer, a pioneer in that regard as a transgender athlete at the Olympic Games. But you know, someone's got to start that, that mm. process, and it's got to be you know, debated uh, at length as a result of that, because once you get into the situation of, yeah, as I say, the the human rights versus the, the, the physiological side of it and the, and the psychological side of it uh, makes for a fascinating debate, but you don't want that to be at the expense of, you know, you're talking about a human being there on the platform. Look, as an athlete, all I can really do is to block that out because if I try and uh, take that weight on board, it just makes the lifts harder. So all I can really do is just focus and lift. When you were watching her and you look at her rivals... How does she compare? Does she look much stronger? No, I thought there's probably a lot of similarities. I mean, they're all uh, you know, <laughs> extremely uh, powerful physical specimens. Now 154, Laurel Hubbard. Uh, especially when you see the uh, the barbell out there laid in front of them, laden with, uh, with, with the weight on it at either end. I mean, there was obviously quite a big Pacific Island uh, contingent uh, in her particular class as well, the, the super heavyweight side of it, uh, and uh, they were they were all uh, yeah extremely powerful individuals. She actually stopped lifting in two thousand and one when she was twenty three, and a man at the time. One of the misconceptions that's out there is that uh, um, I've trained all my life, and that transition has happened relatively uh, late in the piece. What people probably don't realise is that I actually stopped lifting in 2001 when I was 23 because it just became too much to bear. But uh, the world has changed, of course, and I feel like I'm now in a place where I can train and compete and uh, cope with all of that. So then she did transition in 2013. So is that when she really came into the spotlight? Yes, I think so. I think it really started to gain traction in 2017 when she won New Zealand's first medals at a world championship in weightlifting. So New Zealand's never had a, a medal in weightlifting. Obviously, it's a it's a fairly tricky field to get into. It's always with the whole you know drug use and all those sorts of things. You know, Eastern Europeans that, but uh, Laurel Hubbard able to get the two silver medals in California, and that really made it start to escalate as an issue on the sporting stage, both nationally, but then eventually internationally, of course, with the, with the Commonwealth Games. And what was the coverage like back then and when she really started to compete as a woman? In terms of tone, I think quizzical, for sure, starting to weigh up the, the, the moral argument versus the physical argument of it all. And then that's, that's good journalism, really, when you have that debate and, and put it out there, as long as it's done on, in, in rational terms. So... Hopefully it will continue along those lines uh, with the Olympics in prospect. There's, there's a fair bit of vitriol out there from what I've seen as well. Unfortunately, that's probably what comes with being a pioneer in some regards, and, and that's a 
that's a really unfortunate thing. And, and, and you really hope that, that someone like Laurel Hubbard does have the mental strength to be able to, to match her physical strength, if you like, to be able to, to cope with that. Do you think she has, What from what you know of her? Yes, I think uh, uh, always struck me as, as a fairly determined sort of person and, and someone who, um, once they put to mind, mind to something, um, was determined to achieve it. And I think that I think about that actually, you now you mention it, from, from school days because she was advanced... I think doing, say, for argument's sake, seventh form calculus in sixth form, wanted to get through uh, the schooling process as quickly as possible to move on in life. And most of us were just, uh, you know, (laughs) struggling with calculus as it was at seventh form level, Sharon. So it's uh, just certainly ambitious um, is is probably how I would uh, uh, phrase it. And Therefore, um, it, it probably doesn't, shouldn't surprise that, that she's attempting to, to do something where you know, she's on the international stage and will endeavour to, to carry through with it. We tried to get an interview with Laurel Hubbard, but her coach, Simon Kent, said she's focused on being the best athlete she can be lifting weights and isn't after any spotlight for transgender issues. Andrew Alderson says Kent is a good person to sit alongside Hubbard. I spoke to them. You know, off the record at the at the Commonwealth Games in the aftermath, and just yeah, uh, you know, they were just casually sort of hanging around the, the team hotel, and that he looked to me like a, a an excellent confidant to work through issues uh, with her at the time. And why do you say that? Good listener and bought into what Laurel was trying to do, and as a high performance manager, obviously would liaise carefully both on on all fronts, really, be it a you know, the competition front, but also the, the mental strength that's required and to compete at that level. Who else would be there for her to get support from? Well, I imagine family would be pretty important to Laurel, Dick and, and Diana uh, Hubbard and, you know, the weightlifting networks um, over the years. She's got some mentors or has uh, you know, developed a few affiliations there as well. When I was speaking to Kristen Worley about this, um, and she has worked closely with the IOC in developing a better framework for, for health and well-being, is how she calls it, but she says right now that the system isn't ready for Laurel. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would, for the most part, because I think even though they have put down stipulations on the amount of testosterone you can have and trying to work out, I suppose, what they would consider a level playing field, because it is a pioneering issue, it's a, it's a first, there's always going to have to be give and take over a number of years before they work out probably the, the, the system that works best for them. Mm. So I think it could be a touch of hit and miss there. Yeah, I sympathise with them on that because once you're faced with something you've never been faced with before, much like the COVID pandemic as well, trying to organise Olympics in those circumstances you're going to have to work through it. And it's probably going to require an element of critical mass as well where you have other athletes coming forward competing as transgender athletes. I could see it happening in any number of sports uh, as the years move on here. I'm, I'm a New Zealander myself, and, you know, all of this has come full circle in my lifetime, and it's very personal to me, and I'm actually very proud of my country and I'm very proud of the people of New Zealand and, and you know it's 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 many amazing things have been coming out of New Zealand through COVID-19 and, and we're always the nation of you know bringing fundamental change in the world you know out of that little corner of the world mm-hmm. this is again one of those moments 
That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get the detail downloaded free to your mobile phone every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, give us a rating so others can find us too. This episode was engineered by Flo Wilson and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Andrew Alderson and Kristen Worley. Kakite anō.